Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Okay. Well, you look great. You look like you're ready to pay attention. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, um, Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we ask that you would humble our hearts. God, would you make them uh, soft and receptive to your word? Lord, just help us to see your goodness and your beauty that is communicated so clearly and so powerfully through the arrival of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would honor you and praise you. God, would you help us to worship you? Father, help us to fear you and not fear man. Lord, we love you, and God, we ask that you be faithful 
or we know that you are faithful, Lord, to be at work among us. So we ask that you would do just that. We praise you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So coming into our text this morning, there's one observation that's really important for us to make, and that is the way that uh, Luke encapsulates his message right here. He encapsulates it with two themes. So he brackets it or bookends it, you could say. And the first theme that surrounds this passage that we're in is that Jesus was a Messiah according to the law of God. So let's look at verse 22 together. If you're in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we see that, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That happens right at the beginning of this scene. And then at the end of this scene, verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So big emphasis right here on God's law, that Jesus uh, came as Messiah according to the law of the Lord. Now, the second thing, the second theme that surrounds this text is that of the salvation of Israel. So here we see this introduced when Simeon is introduced. So verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Similar point highlighted when Anna is introduced. So at the end of the passage, verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have the redemption of Jerusalem and the consolation of Israel. And then we have uh, the fact that Jesus was presented and he came to the temple in accordance with God's law. So there's a big focus, a big emphasis on Israel. The fact that Jesus is fulfilling promises to Israel and that he's saving Israel. Now that might seem like a, or actually it is pretty, it's a pretty obvious observation, like thank you Vince, tell us something that we don't know. Um, so that's a relatively obvious observation, but I think the point that Luke is making here, goes, it's often underappreciated. You see what Luke is telling us simply is that salvation took place in a historical context. Okay, in other words, the salvation that God provides is for real people that have real problems and real pain. God's salvation, the salvation that he has promised, affects real lives. That is, uh, like when you boil it all down, that is the significance of the fact that salvation took place in the historical context of God's promise to Israel. We could say that salvation in history means salvation that counts. You see, God didn't just make up this salvation for hypothetical people or only like the spiritual elite, something that is abstract and way out there, something that may or may not affect our lives today. God does not provide a salvation that is for uh, hypothetical people or just for the spiritual elite. No, he provides salvation that is for real people, 
That is what it means when we say that salvation in history is salvation that counts. Now, our, our culture, our, you know, we see this all over in American culture, that people will reduce and distort salvation in a number of ways. Uh, some people will reduce Christianity and its message to um, like feelings of spirituality. We hear it all the time. People say that they're spiritual, not religious. Uh, for these people, Christianity or the Jesus presented in the scriptures, it's all about positive emotions, positive feelings, right? Uh, others will look to the gospel or look to salvation in positive thinking or self-actualization or becoming a better version of you. Right? That, for them, that is what the message of Christianity is. Others will reduce and distort Christianity to promises of health, wealth, and good fortune. But Christianity and the salvation that it offers is none of those things. Right? Salvation is not becoming a better version of you. When you think about it, is, is that really all that our Savior has to offer? I mean, what about for people who are desperately hurting? Is that what they need? Self-actualization? Do they need a message of overcoming your obstacles with positive thinking? Is that what hurting people need? No, it's, it's not. I mean, we've, we've all heard the news. We've all heard about the Osprey crash. We've all heard about the grieving families that have lost because of this. Is that all we have to offer them as Christians? Be a better version of you. Overcome your obstacles with positive thinking. Have positive energy, positive emotions. Christianity offers something real, something tangible, something meaningful, something that affects people's real lives because our Savior entered into our history at a particular time and place to save real people. Salvation in history means a salvation that counts. Salvation is all about God's plan, which he accomplished through a chosen person in a chosen nation at his chosen time. And that very evident truth should humble us because we do not get to define who Jesus is. We do not get to define what salvation is. No matter what our culture wants to tell us, no matter how attractive it may seem to put together a savior that fits according to your own liking, we do not get to define Jesus nor salvation. But thankfully, we have something real, we have something tangible, something that really affects us because Jesus provides a salvation that has eternal consequences. A salvation that is life-altering, a salvation that has real effects. And again, that is because it is something that God has planned, something that he has purposed, and something that he has provided through the history of Israel. So that's, that's what I want us all to take away today, is that, yes, there's this emphasis on Israel, 
But that's really important, not just for Israelites. It's important for the whole world because it is how God has entered our history to affect our lives. We can look at it this way. Fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel equals a real savior for real people. The fulfillment of God's promise to Israel equals a real savior for real people. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down because this is how we connect our text with the main idea this morning. So here's the main idea. We've already said it before. But this is the real practical implication of what's going on here. Is that salvation in history means salvation that counts. Two points this morning. You're welcome. One, the salvation of Israel. And two, salvation incarnate. And uh, because we only have two points this morning, I can ask you to really focus on what I'm about to say next because it's really important as we move forward. Where we're talking here about the fact that salvation has taken place in history. It's taken place in the history and through the history of Israel. That observation should naturally lead us to the question, why? If you're God, why enter human history at all? Why use Israel as a vehicle to bring your Messiah to the earth? In other words, why did the Son of God have to become a man? The short answer is that we needed a man, we needed a human to represent us before God. We didn't need an angel to represent us before God. We didn't need a spirit to represent us before God. We needed a human obedience to count for us so that we could be righteous in God's sight. We needed a human obedience. So just like Adam represented all of humanity in the fall, so now we're in this fallen sinful world, so Jesus Christ represents all of his people before God. We needed a human righteousness, a human obedience. It's, this concept is laid out very clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. So if you're in your Bibles, you can turn with me there or look up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2. Here the author writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the, de the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Do you guys catch the logic there? Jesus became a man rather than an angel because he's helping humanity. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." 
So the logic of Hebrews chapter 2 is telling us that Jesus had to become a man in order to provide the right kind of sacrifice for us in the eyes of God so that we could be accepted and counted righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We look to Jesus to redeem the fullness of our human experience. He, we look to him to redeem all the pain and all the suffering, all, all the struggle that we go through. And the reason we can look to him to do that is because he experienced it himself. He came to provide a real human salvation, not just some far-fetched made-up one. That is what Hebrews is getting at. So keep this in mind as we work through the text. We're going to come back to this later. But for now, let's move into point number one. So point number one, the salvation of Israel. So here we're met by, in this scene in Luke chapter two, we're met by two devout Jews, two prophets, and um, they recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They recognize him as the Lord's Christ. It's kind of interesting that out of all the crowds at the temple, out of all the people at the temple, out of all the Pharisees and teachers of the law that were there, it was these two people that recognized Jesus. And that's somewhat understandable because Jesus was very, had a very humble upbringing, very unassuming. Um, but still, right, the Pharisees, they're, they're supposed to be the teachers of the law. They're supposed to know when and who exactly the Messiah is supposed to be. They're supposed to know exactly what to look for. Yet they missed him. Why did they miss him? It's because they were placing their own expectations on how God should work. Right? They were looking uh, to God for a grand-looking conqueror, an outwardly impressive person to rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Right? They missed Jesus because they were placing their own human expectations on God. Yet, Simeon and Anna recognize him. Now, how is it that they recognize him? The text highlights two traits that they both share. The first trait that they share is that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're told this explicitly about Simeon, that he was devout and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And implicitly, the same thing is communicated about Anna, right? She's called a prophetess. Therefore, she was filled with the Spirit. So they're both filled with the Spirit. And the second thing we see about them is that they're both dedicated to worshiping the Lord and following Him in obedience. They're dedicated to Him. Uh, we see this implicitly in Simeon's actions, how he came to the temple. And of Anna, it is said that she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So they were both dedicated. They were both filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we would rather be like Simeon and Anna than the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees who knew the law and they saw Jesus face to face, yet they still missed him. So how can we learn from Simeon and Anna? What are they telling us? Well, we can learn to have a posture like theirs. 
Simeon and Anna had hearts that were soft to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they were committed, they were dedicated to following through with obedience. So they allowed themselves, they, again, they were soft to the leading of God's Spirit, and whatever he had shown them, they were dedicated to following through with it. Right, that's how we can learn from their example. I can tell you that you're, you're far more likely to experience Jesus in your lives if your hearts are soft to the leading of the Holy Spirit and if you're committed to following through on what God is calling you to do, what he has shown you. Of course, when you feel the leading of the Holy Spirit, you want to, number one, search the scriptures to make sure that that leading is consistent with what you see. But let your hearts be soft to the Spirit of the Lord. Don't suppress, don't ignore what God may be doing in and through you. Now both Simeon and Anna recognize Jesus and they give praise to God because of it. They understand that the arrival of this child means salvation for Israel. So they praise the Lord. Simeon puts it this way. In verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. So Simeon bursts forth into praise and he says essentially that this child is the savior of the whole world. Salvation in the presence of all peoples and a light for the Gentiles. Now, maybe to our ears that sounds like some sort of, it's just like a general truth about Jesus that we know. But it's actually quite a remarkable statement. And here's why it's so remarkable. Remember, think about the context. Here we have a Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph, coming to the Jewish temple to fulfill the Jewish law and present a Jewish Messiah and they're met by two devout Jews. And what do these devout Jews have to proclaim? That this Jewish child is the savior of the world. He's a savior for all people. What the gospel of Luke is showing us is that the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel, the fulfillment of God's redemption of Israel has always meant salvation for the whole world. The fulfillment of God's promise of redemption for Israel has always meant salvation for the whole world. So Israel was not God's plan A, whereas the church is now God's plan B, the church full of Gentiles. No, his plan of salvation has always been Salvation for the whole world, extending to the whole world, through Israel, through a chosen Messiah. Another way to think about this, we can say that Jesus is not contrary to the teaching of the Old Testament, but he is actually the truest expression of the Old Testament's teaching. The fulfillment of God's promise of redemption for Israel has always meant salvation reaching to the ends of the earth. You know, another reason why the Pharisees missed Jesus 
is because they were only expecting him to save people like them. They expected salvation uh, to come for people who looked like them, thought like them, acted like them. Church, I, I, we, we all know better than that, but don't let that be the reason you miss Jesus because you're only expecting him to be at work in people that are like you, that look like you, talk like you. And of course, we can apply this a number of ways in the workplace, in our immediate communities, and in the community around us. Right, we have a wonderful opportunity living here in Japan to communicate to the whole world, to communicate to all of our neighbors that the gospel is sufficient for all people at all times, in all places, across all cultures, without exception. And you know what? I think I'm, I'm just encouraged by this church because we are taking that truth and I see that we are trying to apply it in, in many ways. In our homes, in our immediate communities, and in our broader community here in Japan. Jesus fulfilled the promise of God to Israel, right? He fulfilled the promise of salvation in history. That is why he can provide a true, a real salvation for any and all who trust in him. Again, we can say that salvation in history means a salvation that counts. This brings us to our second point, salvation incarnate. In verses 34 and 35, uh, we have Simeon's words here. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now it's interesting to see here that for this incredible task of salvation, God has appointed a child. Now that's what Simeon says. God has appointed a child. He has not appointed an angel. He's not appointed a spirit. He's not even appointed a king. Scripture emphasizes that God has appointed this fragile human life to do this miraculous work of salvation. You see, this is a testimony in Scripture to the fact that Jesus had an authentic human nature, that the Messiah that God provides has an authentic, a real human nature. So yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, he is God. But he is also a man who was born to a mother who grew up and was raised in her home. Simeon says that this child has been appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and as a, as a sign opposed. In other words, this means that the identity of Jesus, the identity of this child, is the criteria, it is the standard by which people will rise or fall. And that some who are confronted with the identity of this child will oppose him. 
If we're going to put this a little bit more pointedly, Luke is saying that the rise or fall of people in eternal life or in judgment, Luke is saying that the salvation depends on faith in the Jesus that is presented to us in the scriptures. The identity of this child is the standard. It is the criteria by which people will rise or fall. That was true then in Jesus' time. We saw people oppose him. It was true throughout history. Many people have opposed Jesus in history, and it is true today. Now it's Christmas time. Things are starting to look slightly more festive than usual. Um, you know, even though it's like low 80s right now, we can see the signs around us that Christmas time is here. So maybe you've uh, thought about St. Nicholas, or maybe you've talked to your kids about St. Nicholas, or maybe you've, you know, seen pictures of Santa Claus somewhere, which who's based off of the actual person that was St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was uh, born in modern-day Turkey. Um, he became the archbishop of that region in Asia Minor, so back in the early church in the fourth century. And he was known for his generosity for his hospitality. He was known for loving the people of, of his community, loving the people around him. And there's one legend, one story about St. Nicholas where we kind of get some of our legends about Santa Claus. And it's, um, the, the story goes like this. There was a family who had just fallen into financial ruin and they needed some money to provide a dowry for their daughters. So St. Nicholas, he wanted to help this family, um, but he didn't want his identity to be known. Right? He wanted it to be a secret. So what did he do? He goes to this family's house and he throws gold coins down their chimney, and some of these coins fall into socks that were drying by the fireplace. Now that is a, a cute little story, um, but something like actual, you know, that, that's a legend about St. Nicholas, something real, something true that we know about St. Nicholas is that he was very instrumental in defending Christian orthodoxy in the fourth century. Um, he helped put together the Nicene Creed, if you're familiar with the Nicene Creed. He was very passionate ab about defending the truth of the Trinity and the truth of the nature of of Jesus Christ. He was so passionate about this, in fact, that uh, he was in an argument with a heretic named Arius, right? Arius argued that Jesus Christ, that the Son of God was really just a created thing, like everyone else. He argued against the uh, eternal nature of the Son of God. Um, Saint Nicholas was so heated and got so passionate in, during their argument that he actually punched him in the face. Um, there's a meme that I like, courtesy of Grant Ellis. Goes like this. St. Nicholas, I came to give presents to kids and punches to heretics, and I just ran out of presents. <laughs> now, I'm not necessarily endorsing punching heretics, but... St. Nicholas is a, a real example of someone who is known for his generosity and love and care for people, as well as being someone who was very serious about defending the Christian faith. 
That's an important example because there are modern teachers of the same heresies that we've seen all throughout Christian history. Uh, You know, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that Jesus is a created being like the rest of us. And if you're familiar with the progressive church or the progressive church movement, there are proponents in the progressive church movement that deny both the divinity of Christ and his humanity. So there's a a guy, a heretic named Richard Rohr. Um, He's very influential in the progressive church, and he's influenced the likes of Rob Bell, Oprah Winfrey, Jen Hatmaker. That's not a list that you want to be associated with, Uh, but he's been very influential, and he teaches that uh, the person of Christ is actually split into two different persons. There's like your historical Jesus Christ, who is just a, a good guy, a moral teacher of the law. And then there is the Christ, what he calls the cosmic Christ, which is a uh, benevolent spirit that all paths of spirituality lead to. This is what, let, let me read some of his words to you. This is what he has to say about Jesus Christ. Rohr says that Christ is a cosmic reality that is found whenever the material and the divine coexist, which is always and everywhere. And so he's essentially saying that everything is Jesus Christ. He, he puts it more pointedly uh, in another place. He says, the universe is the body of God. Yes, it's the second person of Trinity, of the Trinity in material form. So he equates the universe, so all created matter, he equates that with God himself. In other words, he's espousing a view of panentheism, uh, where the universe is, is God yet God transcends the universe. Now, that by itself is bad enough. Like, the real issue is that he is um, deceiving people and trying to uh, advertise his false religion as authentic Christianity. That is, it's disgusting. It is rank heresy You see, God's word does not let us get around the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. The word of God does not let us get around the fact that Jesus is God, and yet he was born of a woman. Remember Galatians chapter four, verse four. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was fully God, and yet he was also the son of Mary. And acknowledging this fact, even though we may not use this language, acknowledging the fact that Mary is the mother of God, it affirms not only something about her, like who she is, but it affirms something about Jesus's identity. Right? When we say that Mary is the mother of God, we're affirming that Yes, this child that we're reading about in Luke chapter 2 is everything that God is. Jesus is truly God. 
And yet, he came to be born of a woman. He experienced the weakness and fragility of life as a child. Church, we must affirm that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Not just the fact that he's divine, right? Even though that may get more attention, we must affirm that Jesus is both divine and human. Because you remember why Jesus, why the Son of God had to become a man? It's because we needed a human righteousness. It's because we needed a salvation that could count for us. That is why we must always remember that Jesus was fully divine and fully human. We must always affirm the humanity of Jesus. And you know, I cannot think of a more authentic and heartfelt witness to Jesus' humanity than the anguish his mother felt as he was rejected by the people that he came to save. You read verse 35, Simeon says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon is foretelling, he's prophesying the brutal treatment of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the mistreatment of Jesus will be to Mary like a sword piercing through her own soul. I mean, do you think Mary would have felt this way about an angel or a spirit or about the universe? No, Mary was torn up over the treatment of her child. I mean, can you imagine the turmoil that she would have experienced on the day when Jesus was taken and crucified? Think about it. Jesus was apprehended in the middle of the night and then he was tortured early in the morning. So Mary probably wakes up that morning, maybe to the sound of commotion in the streets, maybe to the sound of one of the disciples knocking at her door, telling her, hurry, they have your son. They have Jesus, they've taken him. She's probably frantically trying to find him and then frantically trying to explain to someone why this is such a huge mistake. Right, Jesus never hurt anybody. He didn't make like a political uprising. No, he only ever fed the hungry, clothed the poor, healed the sick. He only showed us the beauty of what the kingdom of God looked like. I imagine she was desperately racking her brain to try and figure out a way to get her son out of the trouble that he found himself in. Was Mary desperately trying to intercede on Jesus' behalf that day? You know, we're not told explicitly, the text doesn't tell us, but I really do think so. Did that day feel to her like a sword piercing her own soul? No doubt. 
Church, Jesus can offer salvation to mankind because as a man, he was perfectly obedient to God. Jesus can redeem the deepest, darkest, most painful parts of the human experience because he came as a man. He shared fully in our humanity, yet he was without sin. Jesus can offer real salvation to real people who have real problems because he took on a real human nature, because he came into our history fulfilling God's promise to Israel. In Jesus Christ, we have the hope of salvation. And that means nothing less than the hope of eternal life. That is the hope of every single painful experience being fully redeemed outright. That is the hope of a real human life in eternity. Not just some like fuzzy spiritual reality up in the clouds. That's how we tend to think of heaven. No, we can be confident of a real human existence in eternity because Jesus redeemed the fullness of our human nature. Brothers and sisters, salvation in history means a salvation that counts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for looking upon us, God, looking upon our pain and our hurt, God, looking upon our hopeless situation and intervening yourself to do something about it. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who we confess is full God and full man. Lord, what a beautiful, righteous, perfect Savior that you have given us. And Lord, we lift up the families of those who have lost, for those who have, are grieving over the terrible tragedy of the incident that we heard about not so long ago, God. Lord, would you please be with these grieving families who have lost husbands and fathers and sons. We ask that you would be at work in their lives to comfort them, to shed your light and your love, God, upon their lives. Lord, would you make your promises and the reality of your kingdom such a real and tangible thing to them. Lord, in the midst of all this distraction, would you help us all remember that you provide a real, tangible, human salvation for us. We love you, God. We ask that you would be at work in us. God, be patient and merciful, and would you have grace 
over our inadequacies and our weaknesses. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.